You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma podcast. Mike Hearn here, your host, back with another episode. Excited to share this episode with you today. But before we do, I've got to thank our sponsors. First of all, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. They've been a huge part of this podcast for the last few years. So the Oklahoma Hall of Fame have been sharing Oklahoma's story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com. And for daily updates, go to Oklahoma HOF on Instagram and give them a follow. Our other sponsor today is the Chickasaw Nation. Now, the Chickasaw Nation have sponsored pretty much everything in Oklahoma. They're a huge supporter of Oklahoma. And it's an honor to have their name and their brand supporting this podcast. So a huge shout out to Governor Anatoby for supporting this podcast. It really means a lot. And finally, our third sponsor is 988. The Oklahoma 988 Mental Health Lifeline, 988 is a direct three-digit lifeline that connects you with trained behavioral health professionals that can get all Oklahomans the help that they need. Learn more by visiting 988oklahoma.com. That's 988oklahoma.com. And now, let's get into today's episode. Please welcome to the podcast, Mr. Lee Rowland. Uh, Lee, thanks so much for coming down today. Excited to dive into your story and the impact that you have made and the impact you continue to make. Uh, like, Excited to talk about the book. Um, shout out to Justin King for putting us together. Absolutely. Justin is, uh, yeah, Justin's a new friend of mine and he's, uh, he's coming through with a lot of podcast connections. So I awesome. really appreciate it. Awesome. Uh, he also told me to talk to you about golf because you love golf, which is I something I absolutely <laughs> love. And that's the reason I'm in this country. So we'll do that. Um, but before we do, tell us a little bit about you. What's, what's kind of like your, your upbringing and your childhood and where'd you grow up? So, um, Mike, I grew up poor and black in Oklahoma. Okay. And uh, grew up in Spencer, Oklahoma, primarily. We And my dad was a pastor, so I'm the youngest of six boys. I have a sister three years younger than me, so grew up uh, just on the other side of the street from the other kids, and so life was different for me. Growing up, we were segregated until the sixth grade, and then we were... Uh, went to school with, with everybody. And so that's my experience here in Oklahoma. Uh, I do want to insert this into this um, podcast early. Um, one of the things I grew up with, though, as I grew up Po, that's minus an O and minus an R in Oklahoma. I was privileged, and I have no problem uh, sharing my privilege, which was a mom and dad that were both, though albeit poor, and Po, we they both had um, college degrees, mm-hmm. and so I was privileged around the my peers that were. I was growing up with many of them grew up without uh, a father in the home or the, the stability that I had in my home. So I was privileged and I have no problem um, uh, enjoying my privilege. And I don't think anyone should feel guilty for having privilege. The only problem is when we feel like um, we were kind of better than others and we just don't want to recognize that. So. Uh, that's my, that's the abbreviated version of who I, who I am. Um, life was tough, though. Looking kind of through that lens of 
uh, black and poverty and, and impoverished in Oklahoma, looking at what was going on with the civil rights. I was a kid, I was too young to know what was going on, but just aware enough to be afraid. And so I still have that that fear kind of in my dreams and my in my mind that of what I grew up with and now seeing some of the same issues we're still struggling uh, as a society to be unified and whatnot so uh, that's the abbreviated version yeah well I mean we got time uh so I want to dive into this stuff the the one thing that that, like you said you kind of you grew up a mum and dad that were college grads. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had an example from early on that, that mum and dad you know, valued school, education, yeah. and, and that being the youngest of six boys, you, did you see your older brothers kind of do that, go go to school and, and kind of say you had something to follow after as well? Yeah, so my you know my oldest brother was kind of the guy I'm following after. He was a, uh, went to the Air Force. Uh, two of my brothers went to Vietnam. And uh, so... But education was, faith and education was a priority in our home. And so uh, I did have those guys to imitate, to emulate. My oldest brother graduated with um, electronic technology, and that's what I started out in pursuit of. So I did, I did have the privilege of watching others uh, make mistakes, but watching others uh, kind of pave a way for me and whatnot. And so I'm super, super, super grateful. And I'll try not to use that word again, uh, but uh, I'm super grateful for the privilege of growing up in a very healthy uh, family of love and nurturing and I did not know that my life was the exception, Mike, until I got older. And in fact, I graduated with uh, four of the guys that we were super close. We called ourselves the sophisticated gents from Star Spencer High School. And it wasn't until we were all 40 and we met for for dinner uh, one evening. And those guys told me for the first time, all of them had more than I had. Um, in terms of economic um, advantage, if you would, in their home. And it was crazy how this conversation with these five black guys get around to this point. But these guys told me that every one of them were jealous and or envious of me. I said, what? And we never had that conversation. We talk about girls, cars, all, tell all our lies about who was best in sports and all that. And this conversation swung around to these guys saying, I'm, we were all jealous of you. And it really helped me to just kind of look at the, the way many of our children are growing up in our schools without some of those things. And one of my passions is to try to make sure that those resources that I took for granted then uh, are made available and accessible to children and for the broader um, society out there that don't realize how difficult it is for many of our children and our families. Uh, We're telling people to pull themselves up by a bootstrap and there are no boots, there are no straps. And so unless some of us uh, reach out and give them a hand, um, they're not going to overcome these formidable odds. Yeah, so. yeah. So, so growing up, then going into school, uh, you know, going into high school and having those moments, and then you go on to, I guess, assume go on to go on to university. Yes, yes. Did you stay local to go to university? I did. Um, um, 
I, sh I share some of my story in my book, The Fantastic Voyage, but left Star Spence High School, Spencer, Oklahoma City Public Schools, go to Stillwater uh, in 1977 at 17 years old, and my eyes were awakened to how crude uh, the world can be. Uh, it was very, 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 I don't know if I said it or not, it was very, very divided. Um, it, in 1977, uh, I don't know how much inroads we made on this um, division now, but it was very, very divided then. And so um, my experience as a 17-year-old black student at Oklahoma State University was a negative one. And uh, myself and many of my peers, we left after our freshman years. I mean, a lot of us did because we could not handle the lack of diversity at the university and the issues that were. So yes, I did. Uh, um, I went to Oklahoma State University as a freshman. I uh, ended up getting my undergrad at University of Central Oklahoma and then uh, grad school at University of Oklahoma. So uh, during this time then, you know, you're, you're, you're obviously, you know, going to school and, and education is kind of, you know, your, your passion, your, your kind of... What is, are you going to school? Do you know where you want to be when you're doing this? Are you doing, are you in teaching? Or do you like some students that just, no, I'm going to get a piece of paper and I'm going to figure it out. Like, do you have a plan set and a degree that you think I'm going to do this and then I'm going to go on? Or is it something different? Yeah, so my, my plan was to follow my brother's footstep. Uh, he was very, very successful, got uh, graduated in electronic technology, got a job with one of the oil companies and he was making good money and that's the route that I thought uh, I wanted to follow and um, I'll never forget I share a story in my book my freshman year I was in an electronic course at uh, Oklahoma State and uh, I dozed off in class I was the only black student in there and my professor through an eraser and hit me in the face. And so I've got this white chalk uh, from this eraser on my fa face and uh, all my classmates were laughing. And uh, that was kind of my baptism into, wow, this, everything is not the way I thought it would be. Uh, I left a very, very integrated uh, high school and we had kind of solved a lot of those issues. But uh, my course to education was, um, my journey to education is that electronic world and that experience really kind of said, hey, I don't know if I even want this kind of environment. So I, I go into, uh, into education thinking that I just wanted to be uh, a football coach, basketball coach, and, and teach kids and whatnot. And uh, I was really kind of called into leadership. My principals um, said, hey, you need to be a principal. And I was just a young kid, like, why? And uh, I'm asking myself, but they looked at a skill set that I had to uh, work with children, work with parents, 
and work with teachers and stuff. So I was mediating things as a first year teacher. I was like, hey, can I help you with this situation and whatnot? And and I was pushed over into administration and ended up uh, after four years of teaching, then spending 25 years uh, in administration as a principal and a central office uh, worker trying to help um, teachers and parents and whatnot. So this is my... yeah. I didn't know that's what I wanted to do, but once I, once I kind of fell there, I realized this is where I'm supposed to be. And uh, that old adage, if you find out what you love, um, you'll never work. Mm-hmm. And it was something I loved in uh, teaching kids, working with teachers and families, serving people. Uh, it's my passion. I love it. Yeah. So where does that, you know, the, the one thing that kind of stands out for me is like, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, kids growing up these days, like I said, they, they don't really want, they don't really know what they want to do. Right. But, you know, uh, I found it in doing this podcast. You clearly found it, as you just explained. But we go through life and we find, you know, these passions just seem to the lucky one of us, I guess, seem to just show itself, right? And we're, we're fortunate enough that we have those experiences and we fall into a spot that we're like, wow, like I love what I do now and I'm going to devote everything I have to this, like you just mentioned. But where does that, where does the leadership, you mentioned coaching, obviously growing up and you said you're a bit of an athlete as well. Where does that example for you come from with the leadership stuff and the coaching and that it seems like you're very natural at it? So I'm glad you asked. That's a great question. Uh, my dad was a pastor, and um, and so I'm watching and living, uh, have a front row seat to leadership. And so uh, my mom was a teacher, but she didn't teach. Uh, she uh, substitute te- taught because of the size of our family. It just wasn't profitable. So I'm, I've got a front row seat watching dad lead and seeing uh, him serve people. And so I, um, I was kind of grafted into this this role, uh, just a, a branch from that that tree. And uh, and again, it's back to that privilege of seeing something and in, and and having a, a possible vision and a path for yourself. And so. I said I wasn't going to mention this word privilege anymore, but many of our students in our school, especially our black and brown children, don't have the privilege I had of even seeing what your future could look like. And so uh, as a principal, Mike, one of the things that I did is uh, tried to get our teachers, low-income black students uh, that were I mean, the school was failing when we got there. One of the things I, I got my uh, ushered into a part of our curriculum, if you would, or uh, of our instruction is really showing the kids the, the the many potential things that they could do with their talents and with their dreams and with their gifts. And so one of the mistakes we've made in school is... Uh, particularly in the communities that I grew up in, which were devoid of a lot of role models and examples and things like that. One of the things that they were guilty of was telling kids, go to school and get a good education. Get a good education. That is an extremely nebulous term to children of poverty who 
when you when you say a good education, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, a fourth or fifth grader thinks, well, I can add and subtract. I can I can read a little bit, and so they think I have uh, I have an education. No, you don't. You don't have a clue of what. Uh, the level of comprehension that you'll need to have, the vocabulary that you'll need to have, the math skills. And so what I was trying to get my teachers to do, and they did uh, quite well, better than I could have even asked, is really to show kids how what you're doing will relate to a greater world out there. So whether or not it's construction, whether or not it's um, mechanics, uh, law, engineering, whatever it is. And we try to show children really the path that you can take. So I, I encourage my teachers, KJO, my teachers, show your children a picture of your home. Show your children a picture of your vacation so that they could dream. They had no clue that this world is much bigger than it is. I didn't know. I found out through... Um, through kind of vicariously looking at some of the things that my dad did and things like that, but trying to open the world up to our children and to our parents was part of our journey, but I know yeah. we're not there yet. Yeah, I uh, am, and to that point, um, do you know Tito? I know him well. We okay. live in the same neighborhood. Yeah. Great. So, yeah. so I listened to Tito's TEDx talk. It's about amazing. His and then moments, and you know, standing ovation. I got chills thinking about it. And it's it's exactly to that point, right? Absolutely. It, it's it's those moments that we take for granted. And he did a great job explaining it. That you know, he got a job because his neighbor, his college roommate's neighbor, was the head of HR. You know, and it's these and then moments, Absolutely. right? Yeah. And like like he explained, and like what you just explained, growing up, you know, you were fortunate because you had those experiences but mm -hmm. most of the kids don't exactly. right and like you said when you say pull you know pull your boots up buy your bootstraps or just go get a great education well it starts way before that absolutely right and that's the tough that's the tough that's the part that we have to change right absolutely. and the stuff that seems like you've been doing for a long time is trying to get teachers to say look well yeah, but there's 10 steps before that mm -hmm. to get you to that. Exactly. And how do we open that up? Exactly. And, you know, it seems like you spent a long time just unlocking that for kids who didn't grow up like you, who grow up with absentee dads or, you know, in poverty or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, my, my journey and my experience as an educator was fun. Um, it was it was just a natural um, life sharing of life's experiences. So as I'm talking to kids, I'm grabbing them by their by their collars and showing them, hey, listen here, dude, listen here. Here's what your future can be like. And so just kind of as as Tito talked about those and then moments, one of the things that I was trying to uh, get kids to understand, listen here, listen here, uh, you you're you're fighting at school. You're being rebellious. You're doing all of these things. Listen, you cannot go to Bob Moore Cadillac. You cannot go over here with somebody and hold up your fist and say, "Give me a home." Give me a car. That's not how it works. You're going to need to have a job. You're going to need to have credit. That's how I got my car. That's how I got my home. So I told my students my story, and they would sit there with their mouths agape, just like, 
Oh, really? Because I'm telling them a story. Everybody likes a story. And then when, we could, when they could identify themselves in my story, how did you get to where you got? Well, I sat down and I listened to my teacher and I dreamed and I, then I realized that, listen here, this, there, there may be something to this thing called school. It is the great equalizer. So I had fun, Mike. I had fun preaching and just, just demanding the best out of my kids because failure was not an option to me and I wanted them to know again vicariously through through my story that my journey I, in fact I have a presentation saying I am you and I, 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 I've done this at universities I've done this at high school this variations of this I am you I grew up without this I didn't have this I didn't have this I didn't have this look at me kid look at me kid look at me I am you 50 years later 60 years later if you will do these things just walk in the steps that I took and I know it's not easy I know you might need someone to help you there but um these kids have listened, and I'm telling you, it's a great feeling right now to be a retired uh, principal and see many of these kids now uh, doing well in their life. But I know we're not there yet. We'll talk more about the journey. Yeah, yeah. So to that point, then with the journey, then you you know you kind of go into administration, and you like I said, you find your passion, and someone gives you opportunity, and then like you kind of fall into this role and figure it out. The one thing that stands out when most people look, you know, look at you and, and look at what you've done is, is obviously the transformation of two legs. Yes, sir. So I'd love for you to share, I mean, as much as you want to share about, you know, what it was like when you started to what it's like when you left, because there's a massive impact. Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to sharing my story, uh, variation of this story, rather, with a group of business leaders because it does transform over, transfer over to any form of leadership, whether or not you're a coach, you're a pastor, you're a business leader, uh, you're a business person, you have subordinates, uh, it works anywhere. But um, the short version is I was recruited to the school district to to serve and I thought they were just kind of randomly just wanted to increase the diversity in their district and uh, that wasn't quite the story. I think they did want to have diversity. Uh, there were no other black um, principals in, in the district and whatnot but the assignment that I was given uh, wasn't random. It was uh, a school that uh, really had been experienced significant failure ever since the 80s and kind of the, the district started to uh, experience the flight of those that could fly away. And that's all I'll say about it. But So the district started to experience flight. A bunch of Section 8 apartments um, that had once been affluent uh, dwellings became duplexes and apartments, Section 8. And I, I like to share that many of those apartments, those dwellings had been so... Uh, unkept, if you would, that they should have actually been uh, leveled. They should have been raised. Um, but that's where all of these students were coming from. And so they're coming from three, four, five-story apartments where uh, on the ground level, on the apartments uh, on the streets on the in the parking lot it just wasn't safe 
when kids got home from school, get inside and stay there until the next day to leave school. It was a really, really horrible place for those kids to really uh, grow up in an environment. The school had the highest suspensions in the district, 100-plus a year, the highest number of retentions, students being held back. It was kind of a Siberia in many ways for teachers. If you go to teach at that school, then it's kind of a... It's kind of the graveyard. Uh, parents didn't want their kids there. The kids didn't want to be there. It was a, it, it was, I don't want to be, I don't want to offend anybody. It was really the armpit of the district. It really was. It was and um, my first day there, I like to share, I couldn't believe it. When I saw the children as they walked in, their clothing, their dress, um, their behaviors, I could not believe it. So the long story short, we turned the school completely around and we ended up with the fewest suspensions in the district. I'm kind of proud of it. We had uh, one suspension my last two years there at the school. You won't see that in a private school. Um, we, we enjoyed a lot of success with student management issues. Our test scores were among the highest in the district, we did get some recognition, uh, state recognition, and some uh, some gifts for uh, our our achievement. Uh, our staff went from a place where teachers didn't want to be to a place where teachers absolutely unequivocally wanted to be there. They were basically on a waiting list. They were waiting to for vacancies to come open at our school from other schools, more affluent schools to come to our school. And so we were doing some things well and doing some things right. Um, one of my greatest celebrations, if you would, I'm not proud, I'm thankful that we were able to create that kind of environment. Our teachers who resided in much more affluent areas and whom did not look like the children that they serve brought their children their biological children to our school. And so we've got teachers that lived in Edmond, Deer Creek, Piedmont, Yukon, Mustang, brought their children to this low socioeconomic community to be educated. And it was a very, very, I don't know, just a moment of great gratitude to see that things had been turned around like that. And so Mike, um, you know, we can talk about some of the particulars of that, but um, having experienced that and and been a a leader in that um, in that transformation, now uh, I'm not okay with that kind of systemic um, failure happening anywhere. It, it it is very 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 common thing where we have black and brown children of poverty that we have failure and and that's basically you just go and point out that community and we have struggling schools as a rule there are exceptions we were one but it's not okay with me now that we have any like that yeah. it can it can be turned around when people actually do the right thing um uh for our kids and, and for their parents. Yeah. So that first day then, you're seeing kids walk in. 
What in you says I can turn this around? What in you says this is a challenge? I'm going to take it on and I'm going to make this place what it is and what it is today. And, you know, now in a place where, you know, you guys had recognition from the state for the school. So one thing was was my faith. And my faith says you get down on your knees, you pray about it, and your God is able to do abundantly more than you can ever ask. Practically speaking, um, if someone doesn't subscribe to that, uh, I'm an athlete. Um, uh, I'm a competitor. And so I don't play to lose. I don't play to participate. I play to win. And so um, that was the second part was that, uh, hey, let's get after it. The third thing was that, um, to me, this was my job. And I was paid, I was employed to perform a job, to do a role. And uh, Mike, uh, I was, would frequently get a new assistant principal uh, to train and to try to, um, uh, just kind of mentoring things like that. And so one of my first conversations with my new assistant principal every year would be, listen, they don't pay us to wish. They don't pay us to hope. They pay us to do a job. So whether or not I'm going to be playing baseball or basketball or you name it, uh, we're going to give our effort and all of my life, uh, Basically, when people uh, work hard, you'll see results. Now, we want to, uh, I would tell my staff even that uh, I, I have no doubt that our best is good enough. No doubt. But anything less of that, we may fail. And so um, those would be the three things that said, that I told myself that would help us make the grade, be successful, is my faith. Um, competing, working hard, saying, hey, if that school over there has been successful, there's nothing wrong with my kids. My kids are not uh, some leftovers, so I'm going to take my team and we can compete against yours. We can win. And then the last thing was work hard and working hard, uh, I believe, is working less than hard in a role like this is really... Uh, next to criminal. Yeah, yeah. So kind of what I take away from that is obviously your love of sports and it seems like you harness the passion, the dedication, the hard work that a child will put into a sport because they love the sport and you harness that and you just direct it at, hey, look, I know you love sport. This is incredible, your hard work. It's also pretty quantifiable because did we win on the weekend or did we not? And why did and then you break it down? It's it, The skill is transitioning that love and passion for sport and winning to education. Absolutely. Right. And, and I love the word you use, harness. Um, uh, I don't believe that any leader, a pastor, a CEO, um, a coach, I don't believe any leader can be uh, effective without passion. And so I was and am an extremely passionate leader. And I'm telling teachers, and uh, Michael, 
tell you one story real quick to digress. Uh, I had a group of kids when I was a teacher. They were in summer school. If they failed summer school, these fifth graders were going to have to repeat the fifth grade. And um, these kids were brought from neighboring schools, and these kids are kind of slumped over in their seats. And uh, they're kind of slumped over in their seats at day one. And I'm like, oh, no, this is not going to work. And so, uh, Mike, I jumped up on the desk to tell the kids, you're here to learn, and I'm here to teach you, and failure is not an option, so y'all better Get ready because we're going to rock and roll all summer. Every one of you are going to pass this test and then clink, clink. Mike, I get hit by the ceiling fan just above my eye. My eye bled like a cow. I mean, those little girls in there, they thought I was a pretty cool teacher. And they were like, oh, no, oh, no, I teach you and whatnot. But uh, that passion I started out with, I kept it my entire life. Uh, it was not unusual for me to go in the cafeteria and just preach to kids. It was not unusual for me to go in the staff meeting and just preach to teachers. Do you know you're the best teachers in the world? You are amazing. We can do this. We must do this. And I, I did that with passion. I don't know how I guess somebody could do it with I guess it could be done, but I can't imagine uh, winning with, with, without passion. I've seen coaches on the sideline, and they're just kind of lackadaisical, and I, I, I didn't seem to meet people win like that. Speaking of coaches, I strongly encourage my teachers to do some of the behaviors that we see coaches do, and that is you get out and you tell your kids, you can win, you can do this, You're, I believe in you, and I, I've told teachers, uh, I believe it's in the Bible somewhere, it's all right to lie if you're going to tell somebody something good. Okay, if you tell, you tell Mike, hey, Mike, listen here, you're an amazing kid. You don't, maybe you don't believe it, but see, what I know is Mike believes what you believe. And so if you tell Mike that Mike is a handsome kid, he's a wonderful kid, Mike will start to live that out. And we were doing that sort of thing with kids, and I'm telling you, it was a game changer. The end result was a beautiful, beautiful kid that really just outperformed what he ever thought he could ever do or she thought she could do. Yeah, and you see that transformation. You see the smile on their faces. They're bouncing, coming into school. That's a huge change from that first day where you saw them walking in, right? <laughs> Mike, I, I miss that. I miss that, exp that, that, and there's a void in my life where I'll forever be because uh, just seeing kids come in from uh, acting like a zero to leaving like a hero. Um, it's, it's something that a lot of people that outside of education won't get to experience, but uh, people that are in education, man, I'm telling you, it is heartwarming. I, I, I'll share this with you. Many of my teachers that did not grow up uh, like our children grew up in terms of poverty and, and children of color and things like that. Um, I think our teachers came into uh, our school, into their classroom, kind of like, kind of a, a lackadaisical um, uh, attitude in, in, 
in approaching the children. It was kind of like, okay, this was a job, uh, and I'll just do my job. And they left there in love. Um, the next thing you know, they're in love because what happened was, as they helped kids be successful, the the feeling that they got. I, I like to share a story uh, real quick. I, I one of my teachers, her her father was. Um, a very successful gentleman, very, very successful gentleman. And um, he just sat down with me and visited. And he said, uh, Mr. Rowland, I'm extremely, um, I'm, I'm very envious of my daughter. I said, really? Why? He says, she loves what she does. She loves what she does. And what she loved about it was being loved by her kids. Uh, she gave them some love, but they gave her back twofold. And the worth that she had and the, and the feeling of value that she had was you can't put a price tag on it. And I can't put a price tag on um, just the, that wonderful feeling of just kind of making a difference, uh, just being loved. Uh, another story. I went to a basketball game w of our school one day, and our kids, um, uh, after the game, all the kids ran up to me. Hey, Miss Rowan, hey, hey. They gave me five and hugs and all that kind of stuff. And uh, one of the few dads walked up to me, and he said, man, do you realize how lucky you are to have this Many people just love you. Do you realize the wealth of the value of that? And I tried to downplay it. No, I don't. Shoot, I did. Man, it was a wonderful feeling, feeling like you make a difference. And for people that do work where it's just kind of a job and you get paid, um, I... I I, I wish teachers made more money, but I'm very, very grateful for really what they really receive in the form of love and appreciation from most of their students and the vast number of their parents know the value of these people. I wish the rest of society did. Yeah. Yeah, I had, I had a chat with um, Debrion Davis. Sure, okay. Uh, and asked her, we had a quick chat during the TEDx thing, and asked her, you know, what, what does she love? What does she miss about, you know, because she's obviously gone mm -hmm. into more yeah, 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 yeah. now. And she said that she, I think, I think what she said was she just loves standing in the hallway during, like, in between class time, just seeing kids run around, go from class to class, just that buzz and, and just that energy. And then in, in a flash, it's gone because they're in class and it's yeah, quiet yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. But she that just stood out. It's nothing like being in those places with, with those young people who I love and I believe God loves because they, as a rule, as a rule, they look at one another without judgment. They accept everybody. Um, they don't really learn some of these, this foolishness of bigotry and things like that until they get away from school. Um, I don't know if there's a great place to insert this, but Mike, I'd love to share this point uh, about teachers and educators. Um, I'm in a constant um, state of frustration when I look at how teachers are uh, 
undervalued and underappreciated uh, in America. And I just knew, and I shared it in a commentary I wrote for um, the Daily Oklahoman, but I'm quite frustrated that we look at uh, first responders and share with them a lot of love. We should. We should. We should. Oh, my goodness. I'm so appreciative, appreciative of them. Uh, I, I'm very, very appreciative, appreciative of how we uh, honor our military and whatnot. I, I, I'm very appreciative of that. But I believe that teachers ought to be in the same conversation. I have this conversation almost daily. People do not know where America would be without educators in general and particularly public school educators. We would have mass chaos on our hands if it wasn't for those people who selflessly give of their time. And if and I just knew, Mike, I just knew after the the pandemic thing kind of died down and whatnot, I just knew that as America returned to work, teachers would be appreciated, administrators, schools would be appreciated and loved on. I just knew it without a shadow of a doubt. And I see us kind of um, going right back to our own ways of really kind of neglecting uh, these professionals. I'm telling you, I will always be holding to the teachers that I knew that served with me because they gave of themselves selfishly and changed children's lives for the better. And I guarantee you the children that uh, came into contact with Lee Rowland and his staff at Two Lakes. Those those children know right from wrong, and the vast majority of them are are making good choices, um, pursuing uh, great dreams because they were loved on and served in a way that um, that they can now see value in themselves and. America is full of people who are doing hopeless things because they are relatively hopeless. What the research shows is that uh, without a, a primary caregiver that provides, with the exception of that person, not having another person in your life besides your primary caregiver, Many of our children are making poor choices, suicide and other stupid things. And our teachers were standing in the gap uh, for many of the, our children, but not only them, with many of the parents that we, of our children. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for all of us, we look at that. We look back at our school, right? We look back at those, those experiences, whether it was at church, you know, we had a volunteer or, you know, a Sunday school teacher or an actual teacher at school. We all generally have that one memory that comes back to us that when that teacher believed in us mm -hmm. and gave us that affirmation mm -hmm. gave us that and like you just said said earlier it doesn't matter if they were lying to us mm -hmm. because it works it gives exactly. you that you know oh I'm important mm -hmm. I can do this mm -hmm. like you know because they're probably not getting it from home right? right and even if they are it doesn't hurt to continue to have that reinforcement absolutely. you know absolutely There's, I'm sure the data says like 
it's not going to harm you if you keep telling your kid, hey, right. you can do this. Right. So we all had that experience and, and it's just reinforcing that. And even though you might have some teachers who are generally introverted, you know, it works, right? Doesn't matter how it comes across. It doesn't. Um, uh, I had an exercise I did with every teacher. They come in, they sit across from me, and I, I told them, share with me what passion looks like for you. I had an exercise. They had, and so, no, I've got some teachers that are rather introverted. They're rather quiet, um, demure, resigned, or whatever. But I need to see, if I'm a learner in your classroom, what does, trans, what does uh, passion look like? And every one of them were able to articulate, this is how my passion looks. And they knew that they're doing this activity with me, and I want to see that in a classroom because as a learner, that is, that is transferable and whatnot. So absolutely, unequivocally, bro, um, that it, it does work when somebody else says that I believe in you and I'm here uh, to support you on a journey. Uh, it, it absolutely works. Yeah. So, so you go through this time at Two Lakes. You transform, you know, you and you build a team, and everyone does great, and, and the kids are doing fantastic. And you get to a point where, you know, I, I assume you retire, and you think I should write a book. How does that come about? And then we can dive into what the book is, and then how people can learn from it. Sure. Um, I'm I'm a speaker. Uh, I do motivational speaking, I do coaching, I do consulting, training. Uh, that was the last thing on my mind for writing a book. Um, what, how the book came about is people visited the school and said, you need to write a book. Um, one group came from around the country. They were, they were in Oklahoma to view schools and health care and law enforcement, and a group came to our school, and they said, this is amazing. And that's all they did is just toured our school, and they said, this is amazing. One of the ladies on the, in the group of 12 to 15, she said that this is what school must look like in heaven. And she was in tears when she shared it. And I was like, oh, my goodness, maybe I should write a book. I don't know how to write a book. Um, not long afterwards, um, um, another group was visiting the school. And the lady says uh, she happens to be uh, an editor and a book publisher. And she said, you should write a book. And I said, oh, yeah, sure, sure, sure. And I had no intentions of writing a book because I don't know how to write a book. Um, I saw her about two or three times afterwards at various meetings, and she said, have you started writing a book yet? And I said, no. And she said, this is all you have to do, is just tell your story. And uh, uh, I just told my story in the book uh, from my humble beginnings, uh, as a poor black kid in Oklahoma, seeing disturbing things, experiencing disturbing things, seeing teachers uh, give up on kids, uh, schools give up on kids to saying, nope, not, not under my watch. That's not going to happen. And so that's what prompted me mm -hmm. to write 
our story, and I think anybody and everybody could see themselves in our story. Wherever you are on the continuum of economics, wherever you are on the continuum of inclusion or exclusion, you could see yourself in our story and saying this probably um, um, should convict me to do better, convict me to uh, think differently, uh, and ultimately um, act differently when I when I think about the whole thing of uh, loving my neighbor, uh, the whole thing of, of, of education and how education, the importance of it all. Um, I, I go in pretty hard and, and challenge people uh, in my story and hope that they will again see themselves and, and do better. I'm hoping that if we know better, we'll do better. Yeah, yeah. So the book is just another branch to impact people, right? Of your story, also through the through the speaking, and it's it's you know if people can't see you live or they can't watch you, they can buy the book and learn your story as well. Yeah. What I'm curious is, is, do you feel now with everything you do now, do you feel like you make more of an impact doing what you do now, or more of an impact when you were changing lives at the school? It's a great question. Um, my release. My, my release from the school, my teachers were incredibly loyal and uh, my, my parents were, my, my, my students were, I mean, they, we had a relationship. And so my release from the school of, after being there 12 years was, hey, if it can happen here, uh, it can happen other places. And so uh, I was replaced by a principal who's hardworking, uh, sharp, um, determined. I left her in the best shape that I could possibly leave her with the promise that I'm always there to support and encourage uh, her. And so I was making an impact there. I'm hoping and praying that I'm making a greater impact as I go across the state and really across the country and talk to um, audiences of, 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 of myriads of profession, but particularly educators and telling them, if we did it, you can do it. And, yeah, yeah. and so failure is not an option. I believe that uh, Mike, I believe that what we did, uh, the way we went about doing our work, you can drop us off, uh, me and my staff off, you can drop us off in the Bronx, you can drop us off in the Barrio, you can drop us off at L.A., Compton, uh, and I believe w w we could turn a school around. Uh, I'll share this with you, two gentlemen, um, speaking at an international conference, and two gentlemen from... Um, from Iceland, they didn't look like me. Uh, uh, <laughs> they, they didn't look like me. Yeah. Those gentlemen said, um, you need to come to Iceland to speak. And I said, really? And, and so this, these problems, these challenges of um, 
serving our children well, uh, failure is not an option. These cha challenges are ubiquitous. Every country has them. Uh, every state has them. And the story can the story can be different. And I'll take it a step further. The story should be different. When we lead well, when we lead well, people will follow well. Uh, when we empower people, I'm, I'm convinced. Um, uh, Mike, let me tell you one of the dirtiest things I ever did. Um, I didn't really mean it to be dirty, but uh, it turned out that way. Uh, one year, I'm doing teacher evaluations, and I give every teacher the evaluation, and I say, evaluate yourself. And they did their evaluation, and every one of them, every one of them were harder on themselves than I would have been. And um, I didn't realize until after I had done that exercise how invaluable that was. This was one thing. They want to do their best, and they... Uh, we had conversations about that, and it was a wonderful thing to actually mark them higher and say, no, you're better than that, and then saw them even work harder to meet um, my expectations, but not meet my expectations, really to serve their students and their families. And so, uh, Mike, we, our story of success was addressing things like how we respond, how America responds to people of poverty. That was a key part to our success. We, we had to get teachers to, to re-look at how we actually sometimes unknowingly look at people that don't look like uh, us, don't have the experience like that we have and we really kind of look down our noses uh, at these people and so some of our training was very very my training and conversations with my teachers I guarantee you were uh, they weren't they weren't the norm and there are conversations that we, sh we should be having at every school and every church and every business how are we responding how do the people on the other side of us view us. We think we're being kind. We think we're being fair. Uh, but as my teachers, uh, as I encouraged them, and some of them really didn't even need it, they just needed to be given the freedom to, 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 to really look at how they're being received by their, by, their, by their students, by their parents. Once we started to do that, I'm telling you, bro, it was transformative. We had conversations about race. We had conversations about poverty. We had conversations about uh, training about immigration um, and immigrants and whatnot. It changed the game. People came in with a fixed mindset once they became more open-minded and really tried to look at how, again, they were being received, it, it was game-changing. Yeah, and like you said, you, you take that, you know, that, that, that thing that you've built and that, that model that you've built, and it can go anywhere around the world. Absolutely. Right? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Where you are, what race you are, it, the model works. Exactly. 
and that is you know that's the greatest part of it is because it travels and then you can pass this on to anyone else who wants to implement this yes sir and then your legacy and impact lives on long after you do and everybody else right that's the that, plan yes sir that, that's the good that's thing right work. that yes, is sir. like you know when, when you come to that final resting moment and you're like it's my time going up to the pearly gates my life has ended I've made an impact yeah right yeah, like yeah. that's what it comes back to absolutely and I you know I, I get the passion in your voice I mean just for an hour of you speaking like you know like it, it, it just comes out and, and, and it's I get the sense you're not done at all you know like you keep saying it you know we're not there yet and, and you know even if we don't get there in your lifetime, we will still be on that journey and still be working towards it because of the thing that you have put together and the team that you've built. Yeah, uh, one of my good friends, Waylon Cubitt, uh, shared something. He said, uh, you know, we may be the, we may be, we may start a spark. Uh, we may spark a fire that we never get to be warmed by. And if that's God's will, then that's fine. I want to spark a fire. And Mike, I have this conversation of this nature with somebody literally every day. Yeah. Sometimes it's a neighbor walking in my neighborhood. Uh, it is legislators. It is pastors. It's, I have this conversation every day. I'm trying to start a wildfire of love, of change in America. Many of us have heard people say, I want to found it. Uh, I want to leave it better than I found it. How many of us can say this? Things were, in my lifetime, things have never been great in America. Uh, I take a little issue. I'm not trying to be political here, people, please. I'm not trying to be political here. But I take a little uh, issue with the uh, MAGA campaign, Make America Great Again, because I don't really know quite what you mean by it, because it's never been great for some people. So let's make it great. It can just be mag, make America great, and I'll get on that bandwagon. But when I was, all of my life, um, America has been a great country. It's been a great country. But if we want to make it better than we found it, we're going to have to do, have some tough conversations about how we how we treat people, how we how some people have been marginalized and underserved in this country. And I get it. I get it. I get it, Mike. None of us, all of us want to say mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest? None of us want to look in a mirror and and feel like I'm not a good person or anything. We, we, but we need to stand in that mirror a little bit longer and let that mirror really talk back to us. Uh, Oklahoma, we can do better. We can do much better. You, yes, we're a great place, but we could be much better. Uh, I can't wait to talk to one of our um, photojournalist here in Oklahoma City. Uh, Oklahoma is well uh, familiar with him. Is this a great state or what? And I just want to talk to him. I, hey, bro, uh, it's a great state. It's a great state when it's a great place for everybody. And, and I'd like to see us working collaboratively uh, to try to make this a great state for all people. Yeah. 
I think that's a great way to end it. Uh, Lee, I can't thank you enough for coming in, sharing your story. I know we could talk for hours. Okay. I think we, me, you, and Justin need to sit down and record a separate golf podcast because I think there's a lot Let's of ties in that as well. So we'll definitely do that. For people listening, I can, you know, whenever you, we'll put that out on, on our golf podcast that me and uh, Justin are going to kick back off soon. But for people listening, uh, I will put in the description all of Lee's information, how you can get the book, his website, Lee Roland education and all the other good ways to reach out to him if you feel called led to just reach out you have an experience you want to share uh i believe your cell number is on the website right it is so you can reach out there um and thank you so much for coming in it's an absolute pleasure to to listen and to just hear your passion and, and listen you know to meet you and, and see the impact that you've made uh it means a lot so thank you for giving up your time for, for our you. listeners and for people listening we'll catch you next episode cheers Hope you guys enjoyed that great episode. Thank you so much for listening. As always, huge shout out to our sponsors, the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, sharing Oklahoma story through its people since 1927. For more information on the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, go to www.oklahomahof.com and follow them on Instagram for daily updates at OklahomaHOF. Our other sponsor, the Chickasaw Nation, amazing sponsor they do amazing things for the state and they're always sponsoring something in oklahoma they're a huge supporter of oklahoma and without their support we wouldn't be able to do what we do and finally our third sponsor for today the oklahoma 988 mental health lifeline 988 is the direct three-digit lifeline that connects you with the trained behavioral health professionals that can get all oklahomans the help that they need learn more by visiting 988oklahoma.com it's 988oklahoma.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.